0: The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolutions on the way. But I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the brain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You see, come up to Paul Newell, he went with Danny Baker. you silly disco songs the reading Melody Baker. And singing down at Dunkirk. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Russ Rankin. Russ is a musician, record producer, hockey scout, and writer from Santa Cruz, California. He's best known as the singer of the punk rock bands Good Riddance and Only Crime, but has lent his voice to many other punk bands too. He's also the California scout for the Tri-City Americans, a junior hockey team in the Western Hockey League. Russ is further an outspoken voice on many political issues, including animal rights. Welcome to the podcast, Russ. Thanks for having me. So let's start with my standard introductory questions. What was the first sports team you ever supported?
1: Oakland Raiders, probably, just growing up. This would have been in the 1970s, and they had just a reputation as being just a bunch of misfits and like weirdos and cast-offs that other teams didn't want. And they somehow were really successful. They won a Super Bowl around that time. And the silver and black, the colors, I just really was attracted to that as a kid. So yeah.
0: What is your favorite political song?
1: You know, I know I saw that in the questions that you were going to send, and I was thinking to myself, like, how do I narrow it down? (laughs) There's a Frank Turner song, actually. It might even be Love and Ire song that I really think is brilliant, talking about what is punk really doing and and what are we doing here with this movement, like, why haven't things changed? And when I hear that song, it's one of those, I wish I would have written it, you know? (laughs) I mean, I could say that a lot of Frank songs, but there's that one. There's pretty much any crass song for the first couple albums. Probably for me it would be it would be California Uberalis or Bleed for Me by the Dead Kennedys, just because like so effective and chilling, and they were sort of my first real band that I was into and like went out and bought all their records and like dove into lyrics. And at that time there wasn't the internet, so I'm like asking my parents like what happened during Watergate, and like who's Pol Pot, and like all these questions, becoming aware, you know, that life as an American wasn't as idyllic as culture and advertising would have us believe. So Bleed for me, I would say, you know, because I'm so dumb, I can't remember the title of Frank's song. I think it's called Love and Iron Song, but it's brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> That's fine. And finally, what's your favorite political book? Uh, admittedly, my reading has fallen off in recent years. Uh, you know, I read op-eds and articles more. But when I read Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky, that was a big one for me. That's a classic.
0: So I want to start at the beginning. How did you get involved in the punk rock scene? Oh. Did you get there directly, or did you start out in another scene?
1: Well, I live in Santa Cruz, which is a fairly small beach town. It's a surf town. It's like Mm -hmm. a tourist spot. Also, there's a university here. So when I was in high school, probably grade 9 or 10, I was a surfer, and I was listening to reggae music and just whatever was on the radio. I didn't have a big music opinion. I just was surfing and, and smoking lots of pot like everyone else. But I was playing snare drum in the high school marching band. And there's about five of us that played snare drum. And one of the other guys was a punk rocker. And there was like three punk rockers in our school at that time. And he was one of them. And we were on a trip to go to another city to do a band review where like different marching bands go through and they grade you and stuff. And we're on the bus and he had a boombox and he played Chemical Warfare by the Dead Kennedys for me. (laughs) And it just blew my mind. I just was like, what the fuck just happened? Like, play that song again. And I had never heard anything like it. And that was it. Like the next day I went out and bought Dead Kennys Records and dove down the rabbit hole and I have yet to emerge. (laughs) (laughs) Right.
0: So I interviewed David Lowry of Camper van
1: Beethoven and
0: Cracker a while ago, and he was also part of the Santa Cruz scene in the 1980s. And in that decade, the California punk scene was known for clashes between left-wing punks and Nazi punks. What was your experience with political divisions within the punk rock scene at that time?
1: So I was a little behind him, and that wasn't a thing here in Santa Cruz, really, that I recall. If anybody was racist around here, they would have probably kept it pretty quiet. It's just not that kind of town. Right. If anything, I recall a division between punks that were like more traditional crusty punks, like the Sid Vicious kind of look or like the Discharge Broken Bones GBH look. Mm Mm-hmm. And then like surfers and skateboarders who loved punk rock, but didn't look at all like those people like that. Sometimes there would be violence at shows between those factions.
0: So how has the punk rock scene in the U.S. changed over, I would say, the, the last couple of decades, and either in Santa Cruz in California or broader? Has it become more or less political, more or less divided?
1: I'm not an expert on this. I could only tell you my opinion. It seems to be less divided. I mean, once bands that would be defined as punk were signed by major labels and the genre, you know, generally became a commodity and was marketed the same way that people marketed like Debbie Gibson and things like that. Like the appeal changed and the people that were coming to shows changed and it became a lot more acceptable, it came a lot safer. And so I think that the end result is that bands that came after that, we got paid a little bit more money for our shows, I guess, than we would have otherwise. When I was younger going to shows, you know, the clubs were always in a really bad part of town. There was always danger. There was, it was exciting because you felt like you were doing something that was way under the radar of mm-hmm. polite society. And then as punk became a commodity, it was part of polite society. And so it was a little bit less dangerous and more acceptable and less violent as a result. That's not to say there wasn't violence or still isn't violence, but I think that the types of people who were coming to shows, The demographic definitely changed, I thought.
0: Right. Kind of a gentrification of punk.
1: Generally, yeah. Like there's still, you know, underground stuff and house shows and bands like that. But yeah, like once punk became adopted and commodified by the culture industry, it it was a profound change.
0: Now, in hip hop, you have this sharp divide between like West Coast and East Coast. And at least in the early punk rock period, there was also a lot of talk about West Coast punk, I think that Kennedy's East Coast punk, New York hardcore, for example. Do you see important regional differences? Do you think Good Riddance is like California punk rock, or do you think that is not that relevant anymore?
1: I don't know that it's as relevant as it once was. I think that technology has driven that, touring has driven that. One of my favorite things about punk and hardcore in in my country when I was younger was how each region seemed to have sort of its own sound. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: There's nobody from anywhere else that could sound like Poison Idea. (laughs) And there's nobody from anywhere else that could sound like Corrosion of Conformity. You know what I mean? And so, At least to me, I think that has gone away to some extent. I was talking about this yesterday with my guitar player actually about our sound. Because the people in my band that were directly responsible for most of the material were being tremendously influenced by music from other places, we do have a definite California sound, I think, particularly on songs like Yesterday's Headlines or Darkest Days or dozens of others that to me sound very California. like They're born of growing up listening to TSOL and The Adolescents and DI and bands like that. But then there's other songs that are born of being hugely influenced by Kraut or the cro or Killing Time or Sick of It All or Bad Brains, which have a definitely a different kind of flavor. And so that definitely influenced our music. So I feel like some bands from California who I know and who I love, they have a pretty distinct California sound and they've stuck with their guns. They've stayed that way all the way through. And I feel like my band may be an outlier in that we've been dragged all across the sort of stylistic map. Because of our singer and his various forays into different types of music. As a good riddance fan,
0: I would like to ask a few questions about specific songs and their lyrics. Sure. There is a song called Cheyenne from the 2000 album Symptoms of a Leveling Spirit that has some beautiful lyrics. You sing, Hatred is the Stillborn Child of Ignorance and Boredom. Where did the inspiration for that song come from, and what did you want to say with
1: it? That song was directly influenced by the murder of Matthew Shepard. He was killed just because he was gay. And it didn't happen in Cheyenne. It happened in a different town in Wyoming. But I like the sound of Cheyenne better. If I'm writing songs, especially ones that are germinated by a specific event or place or time, I genuinely try to look past the exact event or time or place to dig into what laid the groundwork for this event. Like, what are the things that could cause this to happen? Because those are going to be more timeless. Like mm-hmm. even though I, I love the Dead Kennedys, so most of their classic songs have an expiration date and the songs still stand up and are great. Like they are so specific that as the decades go on and on, future generations are going to be probably less able to listen to the song and feel it as directly as maybe I did mm-hmm. That when those songs came out. And so that song is directly inspired by the murder of Matthew Shepard, but it never mentions him in the song. And so the song really is about xenophobia, homophobia, bigotry, fear, things like that.
0: Another favorite track is Credit to His Gender from the 1996 album, A Comprehensive Guide to Modern Rebellion, which is a skating critique of misogyny. Do misogyny and sexism continue to be an issue in punk rock?
1: If you subscribe to the model that punk rock is and has to be a microcosm of the greater society at large, then yes. I subscribe to that model. Once somebody becomes a punk rocker, it doesn't mean that they instantly become like a person driven by what we would consider like formative or positive ideals. And I also think that what we do in the punk world, we bring with us out into the real world and and vice versa. So I would say, of course, it's still a problem because it's still a problem in society at large.
0: Right. So as far as you're concerned, not worse, but also not better than society at large?
1: I think that there exists misogynistic punk music, just like there exists misogynistic mainstream music. And even now, as society is changing, some songs and forms of entertainment, films, television shows that would have been acceptable when they were released haven't aged well in that lens Right. And so I think the same could be said for music where it doesn't even ascribe an ill intent to the person who created it. Yeah. It's just that what was okay at the time and what was deemed acceptable and fair game may no longer be so. And so there's that. And there's also, there's, there's some just people that think misogyny is funny. Uh, there's some people that don't care. And I, I care. Like, I think it's a problem. I've seen a lot of bad things. I've seen a lot of poor behavior And so to me, I felt like it was important to address it, especially in a scene dominated by cis white men. I thought it was important to address it.
0: Absolutely. And it's also pretty rare that it is addressed in punk rock songs, I think. So I follow you on Twitter, and I would say two topics dominate your Twitter feed, veganism and hockey. Why did you become a vegan? And is this purely personal or also political
1: for you? Well, I think it's both. You know, I used to be a carnist. I thought vegetarianism was stupid. And growing up where I live, Santa Cruz is always a real hippie, kind of hippie town. So we had co-ops and we were into like health food and I wasn't. But like that was kind of like the vibe here. And I just always thought, oh man, these hippies are so stupid. Like why are they eating tofu and bean sprouts, And why are they going to these stupid co-ops? It smells like patchouli in there. And um, just a typical like, you know, young, snotty attitude of a guy living in Santa Cruz. But what I realized now is that like being exposed to it that early made it less of a jump for me. I was introduced to it because of the bands that I was listening to and the scene that I was immersed in. I was working at a bookstore that had a cafe in it. I worked in the cafe part. And this hippie chick that worked there, she would talk to me all the time about it. I realized now she was trying to like convert me. And she said to read this book called Diet for a New America by John Robbins. And I'm like, okay. And so I read the book. And that was a big thing for me. Like, I guess I didn't have any idea the scope of the violence and the institutionalized sadism and the environmental impact I had really had no idea about of the meat and dairy industry. And so that book was like a big slap in the face, like wake the fuck up. And that was immediately followed by an article. There was a guy named Kent McClard who was big in the, in the California hardcore scene. And he had a magazine that he put out called No Answers. And he did a big article about veganism, which I read. And I found that profoundly compelling. And then Youth of Today's second full-length album came out, and they had a song called No More. Back then, not a lot of bands were singing about it. I think Crass did a little bit. I think the Subhumans did a little bit. I, you know, I was straight edge, and I was super into Youth of Today. I loved them. i go see them play all the time. And they had a song called No More about animal rights. And then shortly after that, Gorilla Biscuits came out with it. It today, and they had the song Cats and Dogs. And so all of this was happening in a really short time for me. And I made the decision to go vegetarian which I did. And then we were on one of Good Riddance's very first ever tours, way before Fat Records. We went up to Seattle and back to play shows. And I had a friend in Seattle, this straight edge vegan guy. And we were hanging out one afternoon, and he basically just broke down every excuse or reason that I had. And so by the end of that day, I was vegan. Like I had no good like comeback for him that I could reconcile in my head as making any sense.
0: I never associated Good Riddance with the straight edge movement, but I read that you're straight edge and you just said it. What does that mean to you, and how do you feel about the straight-edge scene, which has often been criticized as being kind of elitist, looking down on people who are not straight-edge?
1: My is a little different than a lot of straight-edge people I've met. I had a real bad problem with alcohol when I was younger, and I was able to get sober, fortunately. But my worry was, I knew I needed to stop drinking because it was just fucking destroying my life. But I was... As a person who is so into the punk scene, I'm thinking, well, what do I do? Like, everybody I know is like this. Like, my heroes did this. Like, this is how I'm supposed to be as a punker. Like, I'm supposed to be drunk and partying and and stuff like that. And I didn't have any sort of, like, place. I felt like, well, I got to stop drinking, obviously. But then what am I going to do? Because I can't be a punker if I don't drink. And then I discovered straight edge music. And I was like, okay, maybe I can. Maybe I can still be involved in this music that I love. And just not get fucked up and so that was big for me because when I got sober it was the late 80s and it was I would go see bands like no for an answer and instead and youth of today and bold and yeah judge and bands like that and the place I always saw those bands was a club called Gilman Street in Berkeley California and just shut going up to a club where there was like four or five hundred kids nobody was drunk or fucked up really and everybody was going completely completely fucking crazy like To me, that made the transition easier. And also, when I first went from being like a punk that got sober to like a straight edge person, I went through my period of being judgmental. Like suddenly, I'm better than everybody. And suddenly, like, if you're smoking a cigarette, like you're a fuck up. And I did some things that I'm not proud of early on in that sort of transformation. Didn't last very long for me. And I also think that a lot of people that were the most straight edge are no longer straight edge time hasn't really smiled on that as a thing but like i think my thing is a little bit different just because like it was a necessary lifestyle change that i had to make outside of music and fortunately for me those bands and those shows at that time allowed me to still be involved in punk and hardcore music and go to shows because in my head i thought well okay i'll quit drinking but then what the fuck am i gonna do like there's no punks that don't drink like i didn't know i didn't know anybody like that you know what i mean like i was just ignorant Now I just get to be like, I get to be a punk. I can call myself straight edge. My level of judgment of other people has ebbed and flowed over the years, depending on who I've been around. But like my North Star is very much a live and let live attitude.
0: So Santa Cruz is associated with surfing and you said yourself that you used to be a surfer. It definitely isn't associated with hockey. Where does your love for hockey come from?
1: So this is going to date me if the bands I've mentioned haven't already, but... (laughs) I was really young and I was with my parents and we were watching the Winter Olympics in 1980 in Lake Placid, New York. And it's now been made in several movies and books and it's called The Miracle on Ice. So basically you got every country there with their athletes representing them. And the Soviet Union at that time was made up of what basically would be considered professional hockey players. But at that time they were not allowed to leave the Soviet Union to play anywhere for money. Mm -hmm. They were an elite hockey team they beat everybody they played on every international stage. And the United States was sending a bunch of no-name college kids. And also a week before the Olympics started, we had played the Soviet Union in an exhibition game in New York City, and they beat us like 10 to 2 or something like that, just destroyed us. So the Winter Olympics really were about probably downhill skiing and maybe speed skating. And there's some other things that Americans thought we have a good chance at. Hockey wasn't on anybody's radar. And slowly this team starts to, you know, win game after game after game. And they've got some good personalities and they got this coach that everybody kind of liked. And then they played the Soviet team and beat them. That should never have happened. Like, if you look at like who was on the teams, it made our country go crazy. It made our country go crazy for hockey and for that team. And I got caught up in it and I'd never watched hockey before. And and I was I was just enchanted by the speed and the color and the violence of it. All those three things together. Right. Which are also three things that I think you could ascribe to punk and hardcore music, <laughs> and so that that's when I got hooked on hockey.
0: I also remember <clears throat> that I used to root for that Soviet team. That KLM line was
1: just so amazing. Well, they're some uh, of the most amazing players ever played the right. game, and it's a, and it's a shame that people in North America really never got to see those guys in their prime. Yeah, like the fact that Vladislav Tretiak never got to play in the National Hockey League. Like it's a, it's a shame. You know, it's a shame.
0: Yeah, they were amazing. So how did you become a hockey scout?
1: Well, I fell in love with hockey during that period. and But obviously living here, there was no team to go see. There was no regular hockey to go see. ESPN was showing two or three NHL games on TV. So I watched whenever I could and just studied the game and learned it. I was fascinated by it. You know, decades passed and everybody that I knew is just like, dude, you got to stop talking about hockey. Nobody cares. Like, (laughs) you know way too much about this. Like, you should get a job in hockey. But, you know, I didn't play yet because I was there was nowhere to play here. Fast forward to like the mid 2000s, the Western Hockey League, it's Canadian major junior. So there's 22 teams, mostly guys that play in the Western Hockey League are 17, 18, 19 years old. Just like the Ontario Hockey League and the Quebec League, it's scouted heavily by the NHL. And when you're 18, that's your NHL draft year. So it's not uncommon for elite players in the Western Hockey League to be drafted by the National Hockey League. But in mid-2000s, the level of hockey in California had become called the Gretzky effect. Gretzky gets traded to the LA Kings in 1988. Yes, yes. Hockey now is center stage. It's cool. It's hip. Now kids that are athletic... That would typically have gravitated towards football or baseball. Now they want to play hockey because of Wayne Gretzky. And now there's like six more rinks in Southern California than there used to be. And now there's tier hockey programs. So if your kid's a good hockey player, now he doesn't have to leave the state. He can actually stay and play tier elite hockey in California. And now those tier programs are enticing coaches to come from Canada or the East Coast. So a combination of all of that meant that like there are now players who are born, raised, and trained in California who are really good hockey players. And some of those guys, by the mid-2000s, were starting to find their way up to the Western Hockey League and have success. Because the Western Hockey League territory is basically Minnesota to Texas and everything west of there, and all the western provinces of Canada. So this is happening, and then I'm wanting to really work in hockey, and I took an online course to try to get a degree in how to do it, being a scout And then I was also fortunate that over the years, I'd made a friend with somebody who was in the National Hockey League, a player who also was a Good Riddance fan. And then it also turned out that he was co-owner of a team in the Western Hockey League called the Kootenai Ice, which played in southeastern British Columbia. So all that stuff happened. It's just really a confluence of events. And he called his general manager, said, hey, I got this buddy in California. He really wants to get into scouting. I can vouch for his knowledge. Like, I think he knows what he's talking about. Would you want to take him on as a scout? Because now that players are starting to come up from California, now Western Hockey League teams are starting to look down here like, oh, hey, maybe there's something down there. Maybe we should keep an eye on these players. Right. And so it was helpful for that team because they had a set of eyes in California, didn't have to pay to fly anybody down. It helped me because it got my foot in the door. And that's how that started.
0: Hockey is probably the widest big sports in the US. And a few black NHL players have complained about racism in the league. Do you see that too? Do you see a more diverse group of hockey players
1: coming through in the youth? I think you're definitely correct. It lags behind other major sports, and especially in California. So the hockey that I watch when I'm scouting, it's the best of the best. And those programs cost parents thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And there's all the equipment. And nowadays, it's not just like, hey, we're going to practice a couple times a week. It's like, they're hiring a separate stick handling coach, a separate skating coach. It's incredible the amount of money that's spent. And so that right away, because of how our country's class system and economic system is set up, that excludes a lot of people right off the bat who may love the game and who may be great at it. and that's unfortunate. I do think it's becoming more diverse all the time. Not only on the National Hockey League do you see it, but it trickles down. Like when I go to see games now, it's not all white kids. But I also know that the sacrifices that families have to make for their kids to play at that level financially are insane. And I don't know what the solution really is for that. I know the National Hockey League has a lot of programs in more urban areas to try to introduce hockey to kids at a younger age who normally wouldn't be exposed to it or be able to afford to play it, providing equipment, ice time, things like that. But in California, where you can't just take your kid out in the backyard and skate every day, there's a finite amount that people can afford to do. And I would never experienced it myself as far as like any kind of like taunting or just out and out racist behavior at hockey rinks. But I absolutely believe that it exists still. And it, it makes me ill, makes me sick. And hopefully that it goes away as, as the league begins to look more like we do as people. And then as people who attend games, fans become less tolerant of that kind of behavior.
0: Now, given the experience that we have from other sports, including football or soccer, unfortunately, that could take a long time. So finally, what is the greatest
1: misunderstanding about punk rock and politics? That's a great question. My personal opinion and struggle has always been the untapped potential of punk to affect greater social change. So does that
0: mean that In a sense, you feel that punk is not as political as many people think, because a lot of people think that punk is like an inherently political
1: music slash scene. I think that's entirely subjective. And especially nowadays, I think that for me to assume if I see somebody else with like a punk rock shirt or patch or something, for me to see that person and without a word spoken, assume a like-mindedness politically is my bad. I wish everybody thought the way I did and we would fucking march on Washington and we would demand a social agenda that we have the numbers that the problem with punk is that it, <laughs> nobody gets to be in charge. Like no, I mean, probably not the problem, probably the, the saving grace is that nobody gets to be in charge. And what's punk for me isn't necessarily going to be punk for the guy next to me at the show.
0: Right.
1: And there's a place for bands that have nothing political to say that are just fun. I can name a bunch of them. And it's because of the ultimately, it's the music that I was first drawn to. Crass, Conflict, Dead Kennedys, bands like that. That's what punk means to me. This needs to be about some sort of social change. Now that I've heard this music, now that I've been turned on to this way of thinking, now that this song or group of songs has inspired me to research the ills of the 21st century, what can I do or we do as a movement to rectify that? And that may not go through everybody's mind. And then my struggle is that that has to be okay, that it's for what each person, what it is, and whether it's just entertainment, if it's just a way to blow off steam, if it's just a way to piss off our parents, whatever, whatever it is, it's got to be okay. And uh, that's my biggest struggle with it. Like, I would guess if I'd answer your question that I, my struggle is that I don't think it's political enough. Right. Thank you
0: very much for coming on the show, Russ.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it.
0: If you want to keep up to date on the many things Russ is doing, you can follow him on Twitter at, at RussRankinNJD. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from The Gonads with the classic song Karl Marx Supported Millwall. I want to thank Jack Fernandez for helping me with the editing, and I'm your host, Cas Mudde. If you liked the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice, and don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the brain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You see, come up to Portland Mill, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly, disco songs are reading Melody Baker. I see him down the dunker, playing with his beard. My wonder that that's Capitale turned out a little weird.